Thursday, October 5th. Joey didn't come to school today. I wasn't surprised. I know exactly where he was. He was in the office at Lake Windsor Middle School, re-enrolling. It's the right for it, thing for him to do. It's the right place for him to be. Never should have talked Joey into coming to Tangerine. He doesn't fit in here. Should have seen that. Joey's not me. Joey fits in with his family. He fits in with his friends. He fits in with Lake Windsor Downs. That's where he belongs. That's where he is now. And that's all there is to say about it. Right before science class began, I went up to Teresa and had handed her six pages of research. She seemed pleasantly surprised. I said, so what's up with Tino? She said, not much, and started to look at my papers. Does the coach know that he got suspended? Yeah, I guess so. Everyone else knows. Is he going to miss tomorrow's game? No, he's coming back tomorrow. Yeah, I heard he got three days. Luis went in and talked to Dr. Johnson, and she said that since Tino didn't actually hit anybody, she'd re reduce his time out to one day. Oh, that's cool. Teresa stopped thumbing through my report. She looked at me right in the eye like she never had before. Yeah, look, uh, Paul Fisher, you got to understand one thing. You can't come in here and start talking about Luis any way that you like. Luis means too much to us. I nodded quickly. Yeah, yeah, I understand. Tino and Victor, they don't play that kind of stuff. I told them last night that they should leave you alone, but you better tell your friend to keep out of their way. I thought about that. I don't think he goes to school here anymore. Man, I don't think he counts me as his friend. Not anymore. Well, I don't know anything about that. I'm just telling you what I'm telling you. She pulled a piece of white paper out of her back pocket. Here, this is a map to our house. Henry's coming over after practice to meet Luis. If you want to meet him, you can come too. Stared at the map and at the large black X marking their house. As coolly as I could, I said, so what about Tino? What do you mean? He won't be mad if I come? No, why should he? I shrugged. You know, the stuff with Joey. You're not Joey, are you? No, but is he mad about getting suspended? You're not the one who got him suspended, are you? I shook my head and said no. I thought to myself, not this time anyway. I went over to talk to Henry D, and we wound up working out a great plan. Henry's brother was going to drive him from Tangerine Middle School to Teresa's house, come back to get him, and then drive over to Lake Windsor Downs to do a job. Henry said that he and his brother would be pleased to drop me off right at the door, at my door. I called Mom and explained the plan. She sounded doubtful, but she agreed to let me do it. At practice, the coach put me in Tino's position. I played poorly, but nobody seemed to care. I was just temporary. Tino would be back tomorrow. After practice, I followed Henry D. to the parking lot. We walked up to a small blue pickup truck and climbed in. Henry said, this is Paul. This is my brother, Wayne. Wayne Dilks? I knew him right away. The fireman. The young man who had come to our house about the muck fire. He gave me a friendly hi, but I didn't think he recognized me. Anyway... He didn't say anything as we drove out east toward the groves, listening to a country music station. Soon we were flying past perfect rows of citrus trees, and that glorious scent was in the air. I saw a large wooden sign that said, Tomas Cruz Groves Nursery. Wayne slowed to five miles per hour and turned right onto a dirt road. We bumped along past an oblong pond 50 yards across, ringed all around with tall cattails. Behind the pond, on a higher ground, was a grove of trees, hundreds of them, all about 10 feet high and 6 feet wide. 
Water sprinklers rose tall among the green trees like skinny metal weeds. We bumped to the left toward several buildings, a house, a separate garage, a small shed, and another strange-looking building. The house was large, two stories high, with old shade trees around it. It appeared to be built of cement blocks covered with a kind of mustard-colored stucco. We rolled in a cloud of dust just or past the house, pulled up next to a classic green Ford, and climbed out in front of that other building. Wayne said, I'll see y'all in an hour, and backed out, leaving us standing there before one of the strangest structures I have ever seen. It looked like a gigantic tin can that had been cut in half, lengthwise, and then pressed down in, into the ground. I asked Henry, what is that thing? It's a coin set hut. They have a lot of them left over after World War II. Some of the citrus farmers bought them up cheap as war surplice. Yeah? Did you find that out in your research? Yes, I did. Henry knocked on the wooden door of the Quonset hut. I looked up and figured that the door was about six feet tall and the hut was 12 feet tall at its highest point. At its lowest points, the end stuck right into the ground. Tino opened the door and said, Yo, Henry D. Then he turned back inside without acknowledging me. I followed Henry and Tino into the far end of the Quonset hut, about 20 yards down through the cool, dark, windowless building, the sides where the metal ceiling curved down to the cement floor, were jammed with wooden crates, sprinkler heads, wheelbarrows, and all kinds of equipment. We joined Teresa and Luis at the rear door. Teresa pointed at us and said to him, that one's Henry D., that other one's Paul Fisher. Louis smiled. He had large teeth inside a large head. He had a strange shape, too. Bony and muscular at the same time. His arms, his legs, his whole body were like thick rope. Louis said, good to see you guys. His voice was soft and seemed accented more than Tino's or Teresa's. He walked ahead of us, limping as if his left knee would not bend. He led us out of the coinset hut toward the weather-beaten trees on a hill north of the house. Louis stopped about five rows in, pointed around him, and said, This is a grove. We grow a fruit here called the Cleopatra tangerine, and we sell it at citrus packers and juice companies. Our, co our family has done that for 45 years now. Louis doubled back, and we followed. We turned left at the hut, and soon came to an open space, as long as a soccer field, but square in shape. Here, the trees were like babies, only a foot and a half high, and spaced not much more than a foot apart. There must have been a thousand of them. Louis sat down next to one of the baby trees, so we all copied him. He said, look around you. This is a nursery. The purpose of a nursery is not to grow fruit, it is to grow trees. We then sell these trees to fruit growers. Louise placed a long finger at the base of the baby tree. This part of the tree is called the rootstock. It is the root and the trunk of a rough lemon tree. Believe it or not, every, time, every type of tree that we produce here begins its life as a rough lemon tree. His finger rose six inches 
to the knobby beginning of a branch. At this spot, we cut a slit through the rough lemon tree, set a new type of bud inside, and close the slit up with tape. Now we have turned the tree into something else, perhaps a Valencia orange tree or a red ruby grapefruit tree. The new bud that we grafted onto the rootstock is called a scion. The word scion means like a child or a descendant of the tree. Luis pointed his arm back to the tall trees. Check this out. A scion can be any kind of citrus that you want. Orange, grapefruit, lemon, lime, and they can all be growing on the same tree at the same time. That means that at one on one little tree, you could have a branch of white grapefruit, a branch of red kumquats, and a branch of green limes, like some kind of Frankenstein fruit tree, all stitched together. He caressed the trunk of a, the baby tree, the rough lemon is totally worthless in the supermarket, and yet there is no more valuable tree out here in the nursery. He got, Luis got to his feet, flushed with feeling. He pointed to the thousand baby trees before us. If you look out there, you'll see that all of these trees are the same. On each, there is one scion grafted onto a rough lemon rootstock. That scion is a new type of tangerine called the Golden Dawn. Luis stared with us at the field that he had created. Then he turned and led us back through the rows of adult trees. He pointed out different types of citrus trees, including some Frankenstein experiments of his own. He answered many questions for our report. All too quickly, we were back at the Coinset hut. Henry D. looked at the door and announced, Wayne's waiting. I looked up to Luis and offered my hand a shake. He took it in a powerful rope-like grip. I said, thank you. I'm really impressed and in interested in this stuff. He answered, then you should come again. I said, I definitely like to. I turned toward Teresa and Tino. See you guys later. Teresa waved. Tino acted like he didn't hear. I followed Henry D. through the door and then stopped short. There, attached to the back of Wayne's pickup truck, was a short trailer. It had a fat, heavy generator mounted on it with a large fan and a spray nozzle on, the, on either side. I said, what on earth that? Wayne answered cheerfully. It's a sprayer for y'all's mosquitoes. We bumped along with the sprayer behind us all the way to Lake Windsor Downs. As soon as we turned into the entrance, Wayne spotted the blue tents along Joey Street. Look at that now, he said. Y'all are having a regular 10 plagues of Egypt over here, aren't you? Yeah, I said, 10 and counting. How many houses got termites? Looks like it's the whole street has them, all along the west side. Then that's where they buried the citrus trees, he said. This was a grove, you know. Yeah, so I've heard. It was all groves around here. Then when we cleared, they cleared this land for trees, or for houses, they just set fire to all the trees and plowed them under. You'll see, you see how the whole blue tent street seems to be on a hill? Yeah, that hill's made of de the dead trees dead tangerine trees. Termites live in all that wood under the ground, but they got to come up to the surface to get water. That's where your problem starts. If their wood in your house is in their way, they start eating that. I said, you can stop them though, right? You can kill them? 
You can call the Orkin Army or something? Wayne shook his head. You can't stop them. You can put a barrier around your house. That's about it. But you can't stop them from eating wood any more than you can stop that muck fire from burning or them mosquitoes from sucking blood. We were at the house. I said, here it is. I got out and looked up, look at the spraying rig. You guys going to turn this thing on now? Wayne smiled. Yeah, we're going to let her rip. We'll kill some of them skeeters for you anyway. I said, thanks for the ride, Wayne. See you, see you, Henry. Wayne waved. He reached under his seat and handed something to Henry. Then, in the same in a, the same motion, they both pulled black rubber gas mask over their faces. They sat there for a minute, looking like a pair of ant men who had stolen a truck. Then Wayne got out, walked back, and pulled the starter cord on the generator. I watched as the rig coughed and sputtered to life. Then I backed away and hurried inside. I dropped my stuff in the alcove and went into the kitchen for a drink. Out of the corner of my eye, I detected two people in motion, and I heard the whoo, whoo, whoo sound. I knew that Eric and Arthur were practicing in the back. Would they stop when they smelled the insecticide? I got a soda and stood at the breakfast bar, waiting to see what they would do. I saw a billowing white cloud enter the backyard like an angel of death. It came from the right to the left in white waves quickly and quickly filled the whole yard. But as I watched the scene, it happened again, just like in Houston, just like at the gray wall. A feeling came over me, overpowering me, like I had to remember something, whether I wanted to or not. I stared hard into the backyard. First, I could see Eric and Arthur. Then I couldn't see them. Then I could see them. Then I couldn't. And I remembered... Our backyard in Huntsville. Mom and Dad were standing in front of me. Dad was directing Eric to move in a circle around and behind me. Dad was saying, Okay, Eric, pretend that Paul is in the center of the imaginary clock and that I'm standing here at the 6 o'clock position. I want you to stand at the 12 o'clock position, right behind him. Good. Now move to the 11 o'clock position. Then he said to me, Paul, can you see Eric? I said, No, I can't see him. Okay, Eric. Move to the 10 o'clock. Paul, can you see him? No, I can't see him. Move to the 9 o'clock. I can't see him. I can't see him. Mom broke in. It's okay, honey. It's okay. <coughs> she said to Dad, there. I told you the problem is his peripheral vision. Suddenly, I felt the hot breath of a predator on my neck. I screamed in terror. Eric laughed and ran over to Mom and Dad. He had snuck up on me from behind, from somewhere back around 10 o'clock. Dad snapped at him. Eric, cut that out. Are you here to help us or not? I remember that I started to cry in the middle of that pretend clock. But mom and dad did not notice. They were arguing with about my eyes or about my glasses. Mom finally said, well, it won't hurt to try, will it? I'm taking them back there tomorrow to see what they can do. And she did. That was when I got my new glasses. That was when I started to see better. From that day on, I could see things that they could not see. I could see Eric posing in front of them in the shining light of the football dream. And I could see Eric lurking behind me in the shadows of the clock. Thursday, November 2nd. I used to be aware of every hour and every day. But now, with soccer games and football games and school and cross-curricular projects, whole chunks of time fly by and I'm amazed at what hour it is. Sometimes I'm amazed at what day it is. The last four weeks have been just like that. They've gone by in a blur, and it's not just me. 
Each member of our family is so, and now so busy that we don't even eat meals together anymore. But I'm not complaining. I guess none of us are. We're all doing what we expected to do in Tangerine. We are all becoming big fish in this little pond. Dad is now firmly in command as the Director of Civil Engineering for Tangerine County. Old Charlie Burns didn't survive the avalanche of bad publicity, lawsuits, and criminal charges being hurled at him. He died of a heart attack in his lawyer's office. Dad didn't even go to his funeral. Mom is now the head of the Architectural Committee, a block captain for the Neighborhood Watch Patrol, and the person most likely to succeed, Mr. Costello, as president of the Homeowners Association. No surprises there. Mom knows what she wants for Lake Windsor Downs. What of the news in football? Eric Fisher's fortunes have changed big time. In four weeks, he has gone from local joke to local hero as the place kicker for the Lake Windsor High, High Seagulls. He is now always surrounded by kids who, I suppose, look up to him. I guess people see what they want to see. Eric kicked field goals of 12 and 25 yards in a 20-0 win over Crystal River. Then he made one from the 37 yards to win the Gulf County game 10-7. The following week, he was on the front page of the Tangerine Times sports section for making kicks of... 40 and 45 yards to beat Flagler 6 to nothing. Yesterday, he missed from 50 yards, but he hit from 30 and 38 in a 20 to 14 win over Swanee. Everyone in Tangerine County knows him now, or they think they do. And what about the other member of the family, the other athlete in the family? The Tangerine Middle School War Eagles have won seven games in a row, and I have played in all seven games. I even started two games at fullback after Chandra collided with Dolly in practice and wrenched Dolly's back. I played all 90 minutes. In the other two games, I went in as a sub for either Victor or Maya in the second half. By then, we had already had enough goals to beat most of our opponents, 10-0, over St. Anthony's, 8-0 over Heritage Baptist, 3-0 over DeLeon, 4-0 over Seminole, 7-0 over Highland Park, 4-0 over Cortez, and 7-0 over Palmetto. In a rematch at our, our, at our home field. Those are the statistics of this soccer season. But I have to describe the feeling that this has given me. It's not enough to say that we have won seven soccer games in a row. It's how we've done it that's so extraordinary. The War Eagles have set out on a bloody rampage through the county. We've destroyed every enemy. We have laid waste to their fields and their fans. There is fear in their eyes when they we come charging off our bus, whooping our war cry. They are beaten by their own fear before the game even begins. This is a feeling that I've never known before. Anyway, I've never known it from this side of the fear. Maybe I'm just a sub. Maybe I'm just along for the ride. But this is the greatest thing that has ever happened to me. Saturday, November 4th. Back in October, when we all visited the Tangerine Nursery, Louise definitely said to me, you should come again. 
I think you meant it. I know I meant it when I said I wanted to, but since that day, Teresa and Tino have held all our project meetings in class. Anyway, I decided to take charge of the situation. I wanted to go back to the nursery, and so I did. Mom drove me through Tangerine on a sleepy Saturday morning. I had no problem remembering the way. Out through the groves, down the long driveway, past the house to the Quonset hut. She said, are you sure these people are expecting you? Yeah. What kind of building is that? It's called a Quonset hut. Is it safe? Mom, it's built by the Army. It'll withstand a direct hit by a 20 megaton bomb. What goes on in there? Is that their office? It's more like Dr. Frankenstein's laboratory. Please, Paul, give me a break. I'm worried about you out here. Mom, it's a citrus tree nursery. The worst thing that could happen to me is I'd overdose on vitamin C. Just don't touch anything rusty. You haven't had your booster shot. Okay. What time should I come back? I'll call you. All right, be careful. Mom pulled away. I walked up to the door of the Quonset hut and knocked. There was no answer. Then from behind me, I, I heard, Fisherman, what are you doing here? It wasn't a friendly greeting. I turned and saw Tino and Luis coming out of the house with the coils of thin black hose wrapped around their shoulders like bandolera ammo belts. Tina and Tino and I got get along okay at the soccer team as long as I know my place and I stay in it. But he has little use for me away from the team. And he has no use for me at all in science class. I swallowed and said, I wanted to find out more about the nursery. Luis said it to come back sometime, so I did. What? You don't have phones in Lake Windsor Downs? Luis said, all right, Tino. I invited him to come back, and he's come. He pointed to a pile of black hoses on the ground. You can grab some of those and work with us. I wrapped a bandolera of hose around my shoulder and followed them. We walked around the Quonset hut, through the rows of adult trees, and out to the baby trees, the golden down, down dawn tangerines. We laid out all of Luis's hose, then all of Tino's, then all of mine, up and down the rows of little trees. Then we went back and loaded up again from the pile. We continued to haul and lay out hose for three hours until every row had a black rubber stripe running down it. We walked back again through the adult grove, and this time Tino sat down on a crate between two large trees. Luis pointed to two more crates, which I hauled between the trees for us to sit on. He reached up, pulled off a tangerine, and tossed it to Tino. Then he tossed one to me. We all sucked them down hungrily. And Luis pulled down three more. I hadn't said a word for hours until Luis asked me, So how do you like the tangerine business? I like it a lot. Tino snorted. Is that right? What do you like about it? I knew the answer to, to that right away. The way it smells. I like how it smells out here. I held up my tangerine. I guess I like how these taste too. Luis smiled. I asked him, What's the best thing about it for you? Louis stood up to get us more, three more. Then he sat down. He answered, just like you said, the way it smells out here. That scent. It's like nothing else in the world. Louis looked at me intensely. 
but he spoke softly, almost musically, almost tearfully. You know, I walk out here in the morning sometimes, and I fall on my knees, and I weep right into the ground. I'm overcome by the beauty of it all. I've tried to describe that scent all around in the air. I've tried to give it a name. The closest I can come is, it's the scent of a golden dawn. Luis looked away. Tina was staring at him with reverence, with no trace of the hard guy face he usually carries around. We rested for five more minutes and then went back to the baby trees. Luis gave each of us a small, sharp hand clipper, which he called a tangerine clipper. We proceeded to crawl up and down the rows, slicing a hole in the black hose next to each tree. It was back-breaking, knee-scraping, glasses-fogging work. I could feel the sun doing damage to the back of my neck and to the backs of my legs. We didn't break again until we had sliced a thousand holes in a thousand spots. Then we crawled out again between the trees with our tangerines. Luis and Tino were hot and tired, but I was more like in critical condition. Luis said, I think that's all for you today, Tino added. Yeah, fisherman, you don't look too good. You look like a lobster special. Luis pointed to the Quonset hut. Take him inside, Tino. Get him some of that first aid spray. Tino actually took my arm, helped me up, and guided me into the hut. He found a purple aerosol can, shook it, and said, close your eyes. He sprayed a cool white foam on the back of my neck, my arms, and my knees. I sat carefully on the on the top of the desk and said, thanks, can I use this telephone? Yeah, go ahead. Mom answered the phone after one ring. I said, mom, I'm ready to be picked up. Are you all right, Paul? Yeah, you sound hurt. No, I'll be there in 15 minutes. I hung up and said to Tino, so where's Teresa today? She's out with our daddy. She's helping him fill out some paperwork in the county building. Oh yeah? Yeah, she's getting more into that now. She's learning how to run the family business. Tino paused. You know, I was thinking. Teresa's real busy with that stuff, so maybe you should do the final report for the science group. You know, on a computer. He nodded like he was agreeing with himself. Teresa thinks so, too. In fact, it's her idea. Sure, I can do that. I waited for Tino to look at me. We could have a project meeting at my house, if you like. I can show you the types of graphics that we have on my dad's computer. You know, pie charts and stuff. You could design the whole thing. Yeah, well, let me talk to Teresa about that. I slid off the desk and started to walk awkwardly toward the front door. I felt like my skin was too tight for my body. Tino laughed. That's hard work, huh? Yeah, I don't know how people can work out in the sun all day. I wouldn't take, but it wouldn't take, I wouldn't make it as a fruit picker. I'd be dead. Tino nodded. Yeah, well, you do what you got to do. I never did that because I never had to. He started to follow me down the length of the hut. My daddy had to. Luis did it too. But he did it because he wanted to. He used to beg to go on trips with daddy and Tio Carlos. He picked oranges down in Orlando and he picked tangerines over at Merritt Island. That's how his knee got messed up. I opened up, up the front door enough to look out for mom. Tina went on, you don't pick tangerines, you clip them with one of those clippers. Luis was doing that when he fell off out of a tree. He was 12 years old back then. He landed on his kneecap, cracked it, and stabbed himself in the hand with the clippers. 
Daddy picked him up and drove him to the hospital. They bandaged up his hand, right? But Luis didn't say anything about his knee because it wasn't looking too bad. And he was afraid that our mama wouldn't let him go out, go along to pick anymore. The next morning, his knee looked like a soccer ball. He had messed up the cartilage so bad they had to operate. They had to put a pin in there, too. He couldn't walk at all for about two months. And he was right about Mama. Mama told him he would never, could never go picking out, he could never go out picking again. Tino nodded slowly, remembering. Anyway, after Mama died, Luis couldn't go anywhere. He had to stay at home for, with Teresa and me. Tino pushed past me through the door. I followed him outside. He said, worked out okay for Luis, though. He became a genius at horticulture. There is nobody better in Florida. I waited to see if it was all that he was going to say. It wasn't. Luis played soccer, you know, at Tangerine Middle School, at the high school, too. No kidding. Yeah, he was good. We used to go watch him. What position did he play? Tina looked surprised at the question. What else could he play? He was the goalie. The goalie? Yeah. They had to put him in there because he was handicapped. I looked at Tino to see if he was mocking me. He wasn't. He was just making conversation. He was in the nicest mood I'd ever seen him in. I figured it was my chance to clear my conscience once and for all. I said, hey, do you remember when you guys got busted at the carnival? Yeah, what about it? Well, I'm the one that ratted you out. They accused some Lake Windsor soccer players of wrecking that exhibit. The axe man? I'm the one who told him that it was Tangerine Middle School soccer players. Tino nodded slowly. Then he said, turn around. What? Turn around. Look over there. I turned around and looked out toward the house. Suddenly, I felt a swift kick in my backside. It made me hop forward about a foot. I looked back. I turned back and looked at Latino. He had a sly smile on his face. He said, if any of your Lake Windsor homeboys ever ask you what happened when I found out, you tell them that. Mom's car appeared around the corner. She drove through the shade of the house into the sunlight and up to where we were standing. She waved to Tino, and I climbed in. Tino returned her wave and then turned around the Quonset hut to go back to work. <clears throat> Sunday, November 5th. Mr. Donnelly called Dad last night, which is funny because Mr. Donnelly has never returned Mom's phone calls or responded to her letter about the row of lightning rods on his roof. Anyway, he called Dad and invited us all over there tonight. Mr. Donnelly, aside from being an outlaw wanted by the architectural committee, is a big University of Florida f uh, football booster. He has season tickets. He knows the coach. He even travels to games as far away as Tennessee. Dad has been after him ever since we've moved here to come and see Eric kick. Now that Eric is starting to live, uh, to live up to Dad's bragging, Mr. Donnelly has taken notice. After the field goals of 40 and 45 yards in the game against Flagler, he showed up at the practice field and watched Eric make three 50-yarders in a row. He was impressed. So we were all invited over there to meet two other Florida football guys from this area. Dad says, I want coaches from Florida, FSU, and Miami to start hearing about this kid from Lake Windsor High. The kid from Lake Windsor High agrees. Eric is now famous in these parts as Antoine Thomas. There are even those who say that Eric is more important to the team. This hasn't sat well with Antoine, 
and some of the other players. Some of them obviously don't like Eric, but it seems that most of them do. Eric and his flunky Arthur are always in demand. They're in big demand this evening. Arthur picked Eric up about two hours ago to go somewhere. We never know where. And they'll be going somewhere else right after Mr. Donnelly's. You can just imagine Mom's reaction to this visit tonight. She told Dad, I don't care if this is supposed to be about football. He's going to tell me why he won't answer the letter and the phone calls from the architectural committee. Dad said, please, tonight is not about that. Tonight is only about Eric. Mom, Dad, and I decided to walk to Mr. Donnelly's. We turned the corner at Kew Gardens Drive. Just as the sun was setting, the row of lightning rods in the red sky looked like some weird science experiment, like NASA's model home on Mars, complete with a for sale sign. Arthur Bowers' muddy Land Cruiser was parked out on the street in front of the house, ready for a quick getaway. I wondered if Eric and Arthur were sitting in there. I stared hard at the tinted glass, but I couldn't see anything inside. Dad must have been wondering the same thing. He started to walk up to the passenger side door, but he never got there. That was when the mosquitoes attacked. I looked up into the setting sun. Mosquitoes completely filled the air above us, hovering there, skinny, black, and silent. They glided down upon us like tiny blood-sucking men in parachutes. We all started to slap our, at ourselves as we felt the first bites. I watched one land on mom's cheek. She screamed and started to run. Dad and I hurried after her. At the front door, we brushed at each other frantically until Terry Donnelly opened it. We dove through the door, nearly capsizing a glass trophy case in the foyer. Around the corner in the great room, a videotape of a Florida Gators football game was playing on the big screen TV. And there sat Eric, composed, casual, wearing his football hero smile. He was on a, a long couch with Mr. Donnelly and two other men, who Mr. Donnelly introduced as Larry and Frank. Eric stood up when the others did, like, the gentleman, like a gentleman would. Everything seemed to be going exactly as planned. Larry and Frank were smiling. They seemed to like Eric, to be impressed with him, to be ready to support the Eric Fisher football dream in any way they could. Mom looked around and said, so where's Arthur? Eric seemed genuinely surprised by the question. He said, Arthur is out in the truck, as if to say, where else would he be? But Mr. Donnelly called over to his son, Terry, go outside and tell that boy to come in. Eric waved to Terry Donnelly and said, nah, nah, he doesn't want to come in. He smells too much like bug spray. Mom sniffed. Now that you mention it, so do you. Eric pulled his shirt up to his nose and sniffed, too. Bauer always has bug spray in the truck, in case we want to go mud run, running. Mr. Donnelly said, yeah, those swamp skeeters will get you, eat you alive. So the conversation went on like that for a while. Eric remained charming. Larry and Frank remained impressed. Arthur Bauer remained in the truck. Mr. Donnelly turned out to be a nice guy and a good host. He didn't sit there listening to Eric all night. He talked to Dad about old Charlie Burns and the parties he used to have in his skybox. Then he 
talked to Mom about the concerns of the architectural committee. I drifted back over to the glass trophy case to examine its contents. A lot of it seemed to be rinky-dink stuff that Terry Donnelly won as a kid. But there were a couple of old things that belonged to Mr. Donnelly. Suddenly, he was at my elbow, saying, I keep my Heisman Trophy out in the garage. I laughed, and he continued, Now what about you, Paul? Are you a kicker, too? I play soccer, sir. Ah, then I suppose you are a kicker. Do you play for Lake Windsor Middle? No, sir, I play for the War Eagles, Tangerine Middle School. He opened his eyes wide. I remember Betty Bright's team. You have all those all-star girls playing for you, right? Yes, sir. How's your season going? We're number one. We're undefeated. We're breaking all county scoring records. Mr. Donnelly looked at me with increasing interest. And you're doing all that with a mixed boy-girl team? Yes, sir. He nodded. I've known your coach for a long time. She's an extraordinary person. Does she ever talk about her track career? No, sir. No? Well, let me tell you. Betty Bright is the greatest track and field athlete ever to come out of this area. She ran the 100-meter dash and the 100-meter hurdles. She threw the discus and the javelin. She did the high jump and the broad jump. She did it all right over at Tangerine High. Did she ever play soccer? No, not to my knowledge. She became famous as a hurdler, and I mean really famous. Time started a fund to send her to the U.S. Olympic trials back in 1978. She made the team, too. She competed in the Pan Am Games in Buenos Aires in the next year. Here, Mr. Donnelly turned to the men who were watching football. Do you guys remember that fun drive we had for Betty Bright? Larry got up and joined us. Sure, she's the runner, the hurdler, Mr. Donnelly corrected him. He turned back to me. I remember Larry and a bunch of us at at the newspaper office one Saturday afternoon watching Betty Bright on ABC's Wild World of Sports. You know, the thrill of victory, the agony of defeat, and there she was. It was a great feeling. Our paper had gotten behind her cause, and now there she was. Larry interjected. She got punched or something, right? Right. The East German hit her in the eye going over the first hurdle. Betty finished fourth in her heat and didn't qualify to go on. Larry reached his fist over to demonstrate next to my face. This German punched her right here, knocked her off her balance. You could see it in the replay. Mr. Donnelly picked up the story. The U.S. coach protested, but nothing came of it. That was it. She was out of the competition. Larry said, yeah, it was a bad break. And then she ran into the boycott. Yeah, right. Mr. Donnelly explained for my benefit, two years later, the U.S. boycotted the Olympic Games in Moscow. So none of our athletes got to go. He stopped and stuck a finger into the middle of my chest. But all that aside, Betty Bright was great. And she had a great amateur career. We were proud to have sponsored her. She got a free ride through college out of it. She got, a, she got scholarship offers from all the big schools. She chose... Florida A&M so she could stay close to her family. Mom, Dad, and Eric walked up behind Mr. Donnelly. He turned and said, what, you're leaving so soon? Mom said, I'm afraid so. Busy, busy, busy. Well, hey, it was great to meet you, Eric. Mom, Dad, and Eric smiled. It was great to meet you too, Paul. Mom, Dad, and Eric all pulled back at once as if in group shock, as if that was the craziest thing they'd ever heard. 
We said a couple more goodbyes and hustled outside, ready to run in case the mosquitoes were still there. They weren't. Eric walked up and opened the passenger side door of the land cruiser. I don't think Arthur expected that. He looked up quickly, his eyes wide and startled in the dome light. He scooped something shiny from the dashboard into the plastic bag as Eric closed the door. Then all was dark inside again. The land cruiser's engine roared to life. And they pulled away. Mom, Dad, and I walked home through the smoky air. We all had come up with things to say to Mr. Donnelly, bright and clever things. But we had nothing left to say to each other. When we got to our house, Dad unlocked his car, reached in, and pressed the garage door opener. The door slid up for us just as we reached it. We all ducked inside quickly. But I stopped myself at the kitchen door. Had to stop. Had to look back. Because something was nagging me. Troubling me. A memory? Mom called back to me. Will you get the garage door um, button, please? One of them must have turned on the message machine because I suddenly heard my grandmother's voice. She said, Caroline, your father and I are talking about taking some vacation time down in Florida. I heard those few words spoken by grandmom's flat voice. I heard them deep inside me. I never heard the rest of her message. I stood still in the garage, staring back at the driveway. And I remembered, standing in our garage in Huntsville, staring out at the driveway, Grandmom and Grandpop came walking up. They each carried an overnight bag in one hand. Eric suddenly appeared on the driveway, so they stopped to say hello to him. Mom was standing next to me. I remember her bending over and whispering, Paul, darling, don't say anything bad to Grandmom and Grandpop. They resumed walking up to where we stood. Grandmom looked at me and leaned back as if to see me better, as if she couldn't believe what she was seeing. Grandpop leaned the other way. He bent right over, right in my face and said, what the hell happened to your eyes? Mom told him, we can talk about this inside. The important thing is that he's going to be okay. I remember them all going in, leaving me staring out at the driveway leaving me to stare out at Eric, who was staring back in at me. Tuesday, November 7th. We had our last home game today against Manatee Middle. They hadn't won a game all year, and they'd been recently trounced 8 to nothing by Lake Windsor Middle. They looked terrified to be in this, on the same field as the fearsome War Eagles. I had to start the game at left wing because Nita was out with the flu. At about two minutes into the game, Maya hooked a 30-yard shot right into the net. The goaltender never even moved. At five minutes into the game, she did it again, but this time the ball hit the right post and came bouncing back at chest level, right across the mouth of the goal. I dove at it and connected with my forehead right above the glasses. I hit the ground, and the ball sailed into the back of the net, a beautiful highlight reel goal. Paul uh, Victor pulled me to my feet, shouting, Yeah, yeah, come on, let's get another. We lined up again quickly, as we always do. The Manatee coach called timeout and came running onto the field to talk to the referee. We had to stand there and wait while the referee signaled Betty Bright to join him. It wasn't until then that I noticed the storm overhead. It had blown in quickly, darkening the field and lowering the temperature. A bolt of lightning shot down. The thunder followed 
almost immediately. The coaches' conference broke up, and the manatee guy waved his players off the field. He seemed eager to get away from us and back into their bus. Betty Bright called us into a circle. The coach says they can't play in any lightning. That's their school policy, Victor said. So they quit? That's the game? No, right now it's a rain delay. Let's all get inside and try to keep loose. We ran into the building and congregated around the double doors in the back. The referee, a tall woman with short blonde hair, came in behind us with just as the rain hit. Victor went up to her. Yo, ref, what's up with this? Are we going to have the, have to play some kind of rain out game? Referee wrote something in a little notebook. She replied, nope, this is it. You play today or it goes down as a no game in our hit, in our book. What's that mean? It's like it didn't happen. Victor grabbed me by the shoulder and shook me dramatically. What about Fisherman's goal? The referee sounded sympathetic. It didn't happen. Not if we didn't play at least half a game. Man, Victor pounded angrily on my back. We were going to murder these chumps. It was going to be like 50 to nothing. I was going to up my numbers. Betty Bright kept looking out the window. She said, it doesn't matter. We might play. We don't. We still... Well, we're still undefeated. She paused to point at Victor and untied. And untied was a reference to Lake Windsor Middle School and what had happened to them yesterday. Up until yesterday, they had the same record as us. Then they took that bus ride to Palmetto Middle School, home of the Whippoorwills, and got stuck in a 0-0 tie. Maybe they couldn't handle the dirty play or the acorn throwers. We hung around near the black door, shuffling in our cleats for 20 more minutes of pounding rain. Finally, Betty Bright called out, There they go! We crowded by the doors, and I could see the red taillights of the manatee bus receding in the rain. Victor turned to the referee. They quit, right? It's a forfeit? The referee shook her head. No, not under these circumstances. You could never have played in this weather. We play in any weather, lady. We're the war eagles. The referee handed a piece of paper to Betty Bright. Guess it's up to you, but this is a no game today. All right, coach. Betty Bright nodded. She signaled for us to gather around. Nothing more we can do here today. Maya, Paul Fisher, good going with those goals, but they don't count. So we have to forget about them. Everybody get up to your classrooms and get you changed. No, with no horsing around. We have a practice tomorrow, our last practice. We have a game on Friday, our last game. Victor interjected. Lake Windsor, home of that Gino chump. The coach replied, Lake Windsor, home of the only other undefeated team. But they couldn't put the ball in the goal yesterday. Yeah, they shut out that Gino fool. You forget about him, Victor, or you'll end up the fool. You concentrate on us putting the ball in the goal. If we ever get over there and lose our heads, if we get over there and lose our heads, lose our focus, we lose everything we've worked for. But we could win it all too, right? That's right. Remember, all of you, we have the better record. The title is ours to win. Like they say in the big leagues, we're in control of our own destiny. Wednesday, November 8th. I must have made an impression on Mr. Donnelly. We're all over the front page of today, today's Tangerine Times sports section. 
There's a long article about middle school soccer and a looking back feature about Betty Bright at the Pan American Games. First, the soccer article. It named the top three scorers in the county. Maya Pandy, of course, is number one with 22 goals. Check this out. Gino DeLuca and Victor Guzman are tied for number two with 18 goals apiece. The article goes on to point out that Maya herself has scored more goals than most of the teams in the county. The scoring goal or total for Tangerine Middle School is an awesome 52 goals, which is already 10 above the previous record. The article didn't waste any space describing the records of the lesser teams in the county. There were only two records worth talking about. Tangerine is 9-0-0. Lake Windsor is 9-0-1. The article concluded the championship will be decided at tomorrow's big game between the War Eagles and the Seagulls at the Lake Windsor Field. The feature on Betty Bright was more of a picture essay. It had a color snapshot of her at Tangerine High School uniform. It had a, a wide-angle photo of her posing with, her, with the other members of the U.S. Olympic team. And it had a grainy black-and-white photo taken off a of videotape showing her in mid-stride clearing a hurdle. Another hurdler's fist extends from the left edge of the photo right into her eye. Her face is twisted, punched to the other side. The caption below it says, controversial non-call in Buenos Aires. After I finished reading the essay, I began to worry. Did Betty Bright mind the publicity? I thought about her meeting at the practice field with Mr. Donnelly and the photographer and Chandra Thomas's frightened run from their camera. Did Betty Bright feel the same way? Did she mind this painful memory being plastered across the front page of the newspaper? Did she mind having to relive the punch, that punch in the eye? Friday, November 10th. Today's game, like all away games, began out on the circular driveway at Tangerine Middle. As usual, we gathered around the bus with our cleats hung, slung over our shoulders, waiting for the bus doors to open. What was unusual was the crowd. The people who turned out for our home games, parents, little brothers and sisters, and other locals, I turned out for this game, too. When Betty Bright opened the bus door and called out, Count them up, Victor. A caravan of at least 25 cars and trucks, including the green Ford pickup, fell into place behind us. Everyone was quiet, subdued, as we rolled out of the parking lot. Nita was back, sitting with Maya, although she didn't look too good. Neither did Chandra, who was sitting right behind them. She had her forehead pressed against the window and her eyes closed. Was she not feeling well? Was she lost in thought? It was hard to tell. As we drove past the packing plant and into downtown Tangerine, Henry D. started to tell me about last year's game with Lake Windsor. It came down to the last game last year, too. That's why they're our arch enemy now. They came here last year with the same record as us, 9-1. to one. They beat us in the last game on our own field. Victor was listening. He called over. You tell him about that, Henry D. He raised his voice. Anybody else who doesn't remember needs to hear about this, too. They stole our championship last year on our own field, in our own backyard. They must die for that. I said, what was the score? 
Henry replied, four to one. And then Vic, but then Victor picked up the story. Ignazio was last year's captain. Dolly's brother, Ignazio. So Ignazio scored a goal in the first half, and we were in control all the way. We must have had 20 shots on goal to there, too. Here, he stopped and looked around accusingly. But in the second half, we let down. We got overconfident. That Gino dude started doing things on his own. He'd get the ball to the midfield and take it all the way into the goal. Nobody stopped him. He scored three goals in the second half. And that Chinese dude got one. I figured he was talking about Tommy Acoso. I said, he's Philippine. Yeah, whatever. Whatever he is, he took the penalty kick after Ignazio finally flattened that Gino kid's butt. Victor's eyes narrowed as he recalled the moment. It was like a joke to him. I heard him tell the Chinese dude to take the kick because he was tired of scoring. Victor grew silent, reliving last year's game, getting angrier and angrier. We drove on. An old bus and 25 cars and trucks toward the developments west of town. Toward the developments where I live. It was strange. Very strange. I was driving past the sites that made up my ride to and from school every day. But today I looked at them through the hostile eyes of a war eagle. Victor had chilled out some, and he started to comment on the scenery. He talked as if he had never been out this way before in his life. Check it out. It's like lifestyles of the rich and famous out here. Others started to get into it as we caravaned past the villas at Versailles. Check out the that gate, man. What is that? That's gold. Look, they got gold on that stuff. It's be- that's beautiful, man. That looks like a movie. They were all sincerely amazed at this stretch of road, this stretch that I took for granted. It was, it was like a movie, like a movie set anyway, painted on plywood and propped up by two by fours, as phony as the Eric Fisher football hero smile. I watched it with them amazed too, amazed that it could be out there, where once only citrus trees had been. I watched it all roll by until we pulled onto the landscape campus of Lake Windsor Middle School. I could see crowds of people as soon as we started toward the main building. People were ringing the soccer field. The crowd was two to three people deep on the home side and spilling over onto the visitor side. Betty Bright drove the bus onto the grass as the rest of our caravan veered off into parking spaces. We bumped over the grass until we reached the corner kick area of the visitor side. That's where we parked. That's where we always park. The coach has made the same off-road trek at every away game, just in case we needed to find shelter or make a quick getaway. I looked out over the crowd, searching for familiar faces. There were a lot of them. Mom was standing with some other adults along the home sideline. Did she realize that I was a visitor? Joey was near her. So were Kara and Carrie and a bunch of kids from my old classes from my old life. Mr. Donnelly and the long-haired photographer were set up at midfield. Coach Walski, bald as ever, was out with his players on the field, leading them in calisthenics. They looked bigger than I remembered. Gino, Tommy, 
And all those eighth grade guys seem to have grown taller and stockier. They look like football, look like a football team. I pulled on my cleats and tied them tightly. Listen up, coach called. Let me break it down for you. There are three things that we need we can do today. Win, lose, or tie. If we win, the county title is ours. If we tie, the county title is ours. If we lose, the county title is theirs. Betty Bright stood up, all the way up to the ceiling of the bus. Let me tell you something else. You have outscored every team in the history of this county, and you're going to outscore this team today. Okay, Victor, lead them out. She threw open the bus door. Victor strode, strode to the front of the bus and jumped up, followed by his boys and then the rest of us. We ran down the inside perimeter of the field. The crowd stared, but no one yelled or spit at us. Mom waved. Joey was busy looking the other way. Carrie was looking right at me. So it was Mr. Donnelly who gave me a big thumbs up sign. We turned and ran toward the visitor sideline and heard the loud cheers of our caravan riders. At midfield, Victor turned sharply and sprinted across the center of the field as he had done so many times before. Betty Bright was already there. We packed around them and chanted our war cry. Who are we? War Eagles. Who are we? War Eagles. The coach's voice rose up angrily, letting us know that our response was not yet good enough. I said, who are we? We screamed back, War Eagles, and fell into a frenzied chant that began each game. War, 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 war. We broke the circle, and the starting players took their positions. I looked around the field. All the people, the Lake Windsor players, st the students, the adults, were staring at us with their mouths hanging open in amazement, in disapproval, in fear. The game began at that moment in silence. I stood in a line with Betty Bright and the smaller substitutes, the kids who only go out and blow out games. I had never minded being a substitute on this team until that moment. Just about everyone I knew could see me standing there, not quite good enough to be out in the field. I hope Betty Bright understood that this was the school I used to go to. This was the team I used to play on. I checked out the Lake Windsor goaltender. He was the same eighth grader who had named me Mars long ago. Those many weeks ago. If things had been different, would I have been standing there in his place? Probably. Would I have made a difference? Probably not. They had won nine games without me, and they had played to one scoreless tie. This was a team that did not depend on his goaltender. The action on the field started slowly. Both teams were sloppy, kicking the ball away. Victor seemed more intent on intimidating Gino than he was on getting the ball. Victor and Gino slid for the same ball near the si our sideline and got tangled up. The referee blew the whistle and called for a drop kick. But Victor still had one more thing to say. He got, up, he got right up in Gino's face and started jawing. Suddenly, one of those big fullbacks they have, I don't even know his name, ran up and grabbed Victor by the hair, spun him around and punched him full in the face. Victor went down in a heap, hitting the back of his head on the ground. The referee lunged at the Lake Windsor player and grabbed him. He, told, he yelled at Coach Walski, out of the game. He's out of the game. Betty Bright took off toward Victor, and I was right behind her. She reached out and grabbed Tino, who was closing on the Lake Windsor fullback with murder in his eyes. 
She pulled him with her to the spot where Victor was lying. His eyes were open, but he had the dazed look. She said, Victor, can you understand me? He said to her, I'm okay. I'm ready to go. He was strangely calm. Like he didn't know or remember what had just happened. He sat up quickly. Really, coach? I'm okay. I'm ready. Betty Bright said, nope. I got to check you out on the sideline for a while. She called to the referee, substitution. Then she turned to me, Paul Fisher, you're in. Victor struggled to his feet. She held on to him while he, she called the rest of us around her and said, this is where it happens. This is where losers act like losers and winners act like winners. This is where they send some fool out here to punch you in the face. If you retaliate, you're playing their game. If you're focused on soccer, you're playing your game. She walked Victor off the field and the action resumed. We had a free kick come in from the spot where the foul took place. The referee put the ball down and blew his whistle. The Lake Windsor players, who had huddled together after our goal, were slow getting back into position. I saw this and screamed, go. I kicked the ball as hard as I ever have over the heads of the surprise defenders. Our front line took off and flew past them. Tino ran the ball down in the left corner, pivoted, and crossed it with his right foot. Maya slapped it to a dead stop on the ground as the Lake Windsor fullback skidded past her. Then she powered it into the back of the net. Bang! It happened that fast. That's how it all had gone all season. That was our trademark. We struck swiftly with just a couple of passes and bang into the goal. One nothing. The Lake Windsor team was in confusion. They were yelling offsides, but it wasn't offsides. They'd been caught flat-footed. Their goaltender didn't have a chance. After that, Gino and Tommy took over. They started picking up the ball up at midfield and either dribbling it to themselves or passing it to each other. And they started shooting. Gino can drive the ball harder than anyone I've ever seen on a straight line from the outside the penalty area. He grazed the top of the crossbar with one that, that Chandra didn't even get close to. He then made her dive to deflect one away for a corner kick. He and Tommy worked a series of short passes all the way into the, into the penalty line. Tommy reared back to kick it, and Chandra charged out, sliding into him for a block. But Tommy faked the kick, pulled the ball back, and flipped it over her into the net 1-1. Chandra got up slowly, holding her stomach. The Lake Windsor players ran out to celebrate with Tommy. I watched Chandra stagger back to the goal. She looked feverish, weak. She held on to the goal post, bent over, and vomited a white liquid into the grass. I turned and saw Betty Bright hurrying toward her. At the same time, Caesar, our smallest substitute, came running into the onto the field. Victor had named him Caesar Salad. He only got in an absolute blowout. He ran right up to me and yelled, Fisherman, coach says I'm in for you and you're in for Chandra. He handed me a red goalie shirt to wear. I pulled the shirt on and ran down to the goal just as coach was leading Chandra away. I placed my heels on the goal line and looked out. The Lake Windsor players were lined up in the distance ready to come at us again. I thought, wait, I'm not ready. I'm not ready. I was numb. Felt like throwing up too. But there were no, there was no time to think about it. Gino took the ball away from Henry D. Like he wasn't even there and came sprinting right up to the middle of our defense. Dolly tried to slide into him, but he was too quick. 
He flicked the ball to the right, hurtled over her, and came at me one-on-one. I was flat back on my heels when he fired the shot, a bad shot, right at me. I moved my arms to grab it, but they never came together. The ball bounced off my face, knocking my goggles up and knocking me back into the goal net. The ball was bounced right back to Gino, who tapped it in. It was 2-1. Gino himself pulled me out of the netting. You all right, Mars? Yeah. You better get ready, Mars. I'm coming back. Yeah, yeah. His teammates mobbed him. Mine didn't even look at me. I took off my goggles, cleaned them. When I pulled them back on, they were smeared with blood. I looked down and I saw a dark ray red spray of blood on my goalie shirt. My nose was bleeding. I bent over. I pinched the bridge of my nose, blew out as much blood as I could. I twisted the shirt around and cleaned my goggles again on the back of it. Dolly called over. Fisherman, you all right? I sure was. Yeah, I yelled. Let's go. Now I felt it. I was into it now. They came right back at us. Gino ripped a long shot that I dove for and caught in midair. I leaped to my feet and kicked it away. For the rest of the half, I was awesome. I was zoned. I stopped everything they sent my way. I punched shots away. I deflected shots over the goalpost. I came out and slid into them before they could get shots off. The half ended like that with a relentless Lake Windsor assault that produced nothing. It was still... 2-1. We spent the halftime sitting in a semicircle by the far goal, eating our tangerines. Victor would be going back in for the second half. Nita, who was struggling, would not. Suddenly, out of nowhere, Coach Walski was standing next to me with his clipboard. He looked at Betty Bright and said, Coach, this goaltender of yours is not eligible to play. He wasn't eligible to play for me, and he's not eligible to play for you. Betty Bright stood up and faced him. You were the same height. Oh, is that right? This is your official warning. I'm going to talk to the referee now. You are? So what makes him ineligible? His address, for one. Now we can talk this over at a hearing if you like. I'm just here to tell you that the county sports commission won't recognize him as eligible, so you're going to forfeit this game if you put him back in. Is that how it is? Yes, I'm sorry, but that's how it is. Uh Uh-huh. Do you see my other goaltender? Her mother had to drive her home because she's sick. Did you see her? She's Chandra Thomas. Coach Walski stared at her blankly at Betty Bright continued. Do you know where she lives, Coach? She lives in Tangerine with her mother and her brother. Do you know who her brother is? He's Antoine Thomas. You're a football star at the high school here. Antoine Thomas lives in Tangerine too. Now, are you sure you want to play the county eligibility game with me? Coach Walski took a step back. His face seemed to flatten out like she had hit him with a shovel. He said, I'm sure Antoine Thomas has a different address. I'm sure he does, but he doesn't live there. I can take you and show you, or any officials of any commission, exactly where he lives. Coach Walski continued backing away. This time he didn't stop. All right, all right, let's just play ball. Ready, and bright snorted in disgust. Yeah, let's all play ball. She jerked her thumb toward the field and we all hopped up. She pointed an angry finger at me. Get in that goal, fisherman. The return of Victor in the second half made a huge difference. Lake Windsor could no longer double and triple team Maya. Victor took control of the middle of the field, which meant that we started to play the 
game up at their end instead of down at ours. Gino and Tommy still broke out with the ball and worked their plays, but I was always there. I saw each play as it developed. I thought one step ahead of them each time. Maya couldn't shake the crowd of defenders around her inside the penalty box. She started coming out at the wing. She came. She made a neat move with the ball to get loose in the corner. Then she crossed it hard and low, right across the front of the goal. Tino and a and a Lake Windsor defender both lunged for it and smacked into each other. The ball squirted through everybody and landed right at the foot of the one guy nobody was worrying about, Caesar Salad. He was wide open. He stopped the ball calmly and kicked it into the net. Two, two. We lined back up quickly. The battle for the middle heated up. The Lake Windsor players started to get desperate, started to kick the ball away. We were playing with confidence and with the clock on our side. Tommy and Gino were now going all the way back into their own end of the field to pick the, up the ball. They had to. They weren't getting any help from anybody on their team. They were their team. The referee was already glancing at his watch when they made a final charge. Tommy picked up a loose ball at midfield and looked for Gino. He drove a long, wide, high, looping pass into the penalty box that Gino and Victor both went up for. They collided and twisted in midair. Victor crashed down on top of Gino right on the, at the penalty line. The referee blew the whistle. No, I thought. No, you can't call that a penalty. Both coaches came running out on the field. Victor jumped up and screamed. I played the ball, man. I was going for the ball, but it was too late. The referee grabbed the ball and placed it on the penalty line, 12 yards in front of me. Coach Walski asked, how much time is left? The referee answered, this is it. He turned to Betty Bright. The penalty occurred right before the end of regulation. Yeah, sure it did, she snarled. She walked up to me. Ready for this? Yeah. What are you going to do? He always hits his penalty shots high into the left. That's where I'll be. She nodded. Then she smiled, lowering her voice, and said, Now I wish I'd given you more playing time. The players from both teams lined up outside the penalty box, everyone except Gino and me. He looked at me, touched the ball with his foot, and stepped back three paces. The referee blew his whistle. Gino's head snapped up, and he sprang forward. One, two, three steps. I catapulted myself into the air, high and to his left. But Gino didn't kick it there. He had fooled me completely. He went the other way. I was a fool flying through the air. I was a fool landing on my on the ground. I closed my eyes and buried my head in my arms trying to block out the whooping cheers. I snapped my head up. It was Victor's voice that was whooping. I turned and looked back at the goal. The ball was not in the net. It was off to the right and still rolling away down into the sinkhole. Gino had missed. He had missed to the right. The rest of the war eagles mobbed me and hoisted me up. We all started to jump up and down and whoop together. I stopped and stepped out of the pack when Gino came over. He patted Victor on the back and said, congratulations. Then he put his arms around my shoulder and said, Mars, you were in my head on that shot. You made me miss. You made me choke. I shook my head vehemently. You didn't choke, Gino. You missed. That's all. He wasn't the least bit upset. It's cool. I don't mind. It's only a game, Mars. As he walked away, I was still shaking my head. I said out loud, but too low for him to hear. Maybe to you it is. Spectators were out on the field now. Someone tapped my arm and said, Good game, Paul. I knew it was Carrie. 
But by the time I turned around, she was already walking away with Kara. Joey wasn't with them. Luis Cruz pounded me on the back and said, I didn't know you were a goalie. Great game. Great game. I said, thanks. I'm glad you think so. Then mom was standing in front of me. She said, are you okay? Yeah. Now, what does this mean, Paul? Are both teams co-champions? No, we're the champions. We have the better record. We're 9-0-1, and they're 9-0-2. Oh, now do you want to ride home? No, I want to go back on the bus. That doesn't make sense, Paul. I'll have to follow the bus all the way out over there and then drive you right back here. That's right, Mom. That's what you're going to have to do. She thought about it, then put her hands up in mock surrender. Okay, I give up. I worked my way back toward the bus, shaking hands with a couple more Lake Windsor players. Mr. Donnelly called out, Come over here, Paul. He and his photographer had set up a shot with Caesar and Maya. It was comical. Maya towered two feet over Caesar. Come on, we need you to balance out this shot. I shook my head. No, sir, it shouldn't be me. It should be Victor. Then let's get Victor, too. Where is he? Mr. Donnelly located Victor and posed the four of us for the front page of tomorrow's sports section. When all when we all got back on the bus, to the bus, the coach yelled, called out, How many, Victor? Fifteen, coach. Betty Bright closed the door and turned to us. She pointed to at us and said, You're number one. You're second to none. Victor grabbed Caesar from behind and shook him. He declared, His name is Julius Caesar, now the Emperor of Rome. We pulled out of the Lake Windsor campus, whooping and yelling, with our caravan of fans behind us. When we got to the downtown stretch of Tangerine, everybody in the row started honking horns and flashing lights. People came out of shops along the main street. Cars pulled over and stopped to see what all the commotion was about. I'll never forget that ride home. When we got to Tangerine Middle, the blessed doors opened and the War Eagles got out to find their separate rides, to go their separate ways. I was the last to get off. I was crying when I finally climbed down the stairs with my shoes over my shoulder. I crossed over to the white Volvo. Mom looked at me funny. Maybe she was wondering why I was crying. But all she had to say was, well, that was quite a ride. I swallowed hard and managed to say, it sure was, Mom. It was quite a ride.